Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 5. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiel, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice... Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. 
They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into pl plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thanks so much for your word, that it is true, that it is good, that it gives life to your broken world. Father, we pray that you would speak to us clearly now as we look at the start of Isaiah. And Father, may your spirit work powerfully that we may respond well to you. Father, we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. For three years, Gary would spend many of his nights driving around the Gold Coast searching for his wayward son. His son was 12 when he first ended up in court. Uh, what was hoped to be a one-off turned out to become the pattern. There was violence. There was theft. He stole a car. He posted on social media. He seemed to get a rush from running astray with the law. Then he got involved with drugs. Sometimes he'd be gone for hours, sometimes days on end. His family didn't know where he was. And so, for three years, his dad would drive the streets of the Gold Coast looking for his son. Gary goes on, I used to cry a lot in the car. I used to say to myself, why is this happening to me? Why is God punishing me? Often when youth crime is being discussed, dysfunctional homes is kind of put up there as the, the number one contributor. No doubt that may well often be the case, but not always. And Gary reflects, my kids were always loved. There was never drugs or alcohol in my life. Why was this happening? No parent plans for things to turn out like this, but sometimes it happens. Sometimes even to Christian parents who try hard, who seek to raise their children in the fear and the, dis the discipline of the Lord. Uh, I think of Christian friends of mine whose son similarly went off the rails, fell foul of the law, wasn't interested in listening to his parents 
or really to anybody. Sadly, it was often a phone call from the police or perhaps even reading through the police reports that would give them some indication of where their son had been or what had been going on. They prayed for him. They loved him. They tried to be there for him. And their hearts broke as they shed many tears over his rejection and rebellion. A father's grief over a rebellious son is always tragic and painful. And it's a grief that God actually knows personally. As we just read in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 1, God says, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. And this is the spiritual context that we find ourselves in as we open this rich book, the book that God revealed through Isaiah, his prophet. God's children, the nation of Israel, the nation called by his name, they've rebelled, they've rejected, they're estranged from him. And this is the account of their rebellion and God's response to them. But as the book begins, we're also introduced to the political context of the day. Have a look at verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, this book is pretty long and diverse, 66 chapters, a whole bunch of themes that come out. But it's introduced as a single unified vision. It holds together. The source is from God that is transmitted through the man Isaiah the son of Amos. The context is when the 8th century BC, the nation of Israel, which was one, has divided into these two kingdoms. Up north, we've got the kingdom of Israel with Samaria as its capital. Down the south, we have the kingdom of Judah with Jerusalem as its capital. We're told that Isaiah is based down in the south, but the, the topics he covers, the people he addresses, well, it's actually far broader than just the geographic limits of the land of Israel. Now we're introduced to four kings who Isaiah prophesies during their reign. It's a period of roughly 60 years, roughly from 740 BC to about 680 BC. If you want to read some background, 2 Kings chapters 15 to 20, fill in a few more details. But basically, to give you the vibe, it was a pretty wild time in Israel's history. For a start, Uzziah, he was a good king and he reigned for 52 years as a long time of peace, of prosperity, of stability. And so when he died, it was a time of change, significant change. And that's when Isaiah's ministry really begins. After him, Jotham, he was also a good king. He was only around for 16 years. And during his reign, trouble was starting to brew up north. But it was when Ahaz took the throne and he turned his back on God, he rebelled against following God's ways, then the trouble really started. Uh, up north, the king of Samaria, well, Israel from Samaria came down, as well as the king of Syria, and they both attacked Judah. What did Ahaz do? Well, he turned to kind of the, the local bully, the big power of Assyria. And he said, will you come and help me out for the right fee? Assyria did what they could. They went and attacked Syria. That's a bit confusing, Assyria and Syria. But Assyria attacked Syria, and that caused them to pull their troops back. Judah was safe for a time. But it was pretty unsettling and nervous time. Then came Hezekiah. He was one of the best kings that Judah ever saw. He was a great man who feared God and did what God commanded. But during his time, things were pretty tough. Assyria came and conquered the northern tribes, destroyed them. 
carried them off, set this mixed race of the Sumerians in their place. And Assyria also came down and marched on Jerusalem. You see, Hezekiah said, I'm not going to keep on paying that safety fee that Ahaz set up. And they got upset. The Assyrians came down. They conquered the outlying defensive towns. They came right up to the very walls of Jerusalem. Now, in God's kindness, Judah was spared at that time. We'll read more about it in week 5 in chapters 36 and 37. But do you get a bit of a feeling in some of the political movements? There's a lot of fear, power-breaking, uncertainty during this time. And God, through all of this, spoke through the prophet Isaiah. So what's that context? Spiritually, we've got the rebellious son. Isaiah is talking to God's people when they've turned their back on their God. And politically, there's great fear and uncertainty. What is God going to do in this mix? Who will God's people trust in the midst of all this? And how are these things all related to each other? Historically, the setting may seem far removed, but you probably notice that in our world, we're kind of, well, perhaps transitioning from a time of relative peace and prosperity to a bit more uncertainty. World powers seem to be changing. What does God have to say to us through the prophet Isaiah? As the vision begins, we start with something pretty global and bring it together with something very personal. Uh, we're at point two of six. It's going to be a blast. Point two, a relationship brings responsibility. Uh, the opening words of verse two, they implies that what follows is actually of global worldwide significance. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. You see, when God speaks, it's actually relevant for everybody, for everything. Uh, unsurprisingly, God who made the world, His words matter. But I'm not sure if you've thought, when God speaks to His people, what happens amongst God's people actually affects the whole world. You see it back in Genesis 3, when God's people rebel against Him. It affects the way that all of creation works. And even in Romans 8, kind of looking forward, all of creation is looking forward to find out who God's people are when they're revealed on the last day, because that's mean that the world will be set free from bondage and suffering and decay. So when God speaks to His people, all of creation sits up and listens. This is significant. Is what follows going to be a word of judgment or salvation? Well, as we've seen, God's accusation is against His own people. It's personal and it's painful. The children He has raised and brought up have rebelled against Him. They've shared the most intimate of family bonds. There's a duty that they owe from this relationship, that they should honor and obey their Heavenly Father. If you go back to Exodus chapter 4, God called Israel His own firstborn son as He rescued them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And yet, what have they done in response? God has brought them into the land, provided for them, raised them, taught them His ways, and now they've turned their back on God. They've spurned His love. They've cut off the relationship. Verse 3 continues to show the outrage of what has happened. Even the ox and the donkey know better than God's own people. They know their master. They know that you should honor and obey those who lead and provide for you. But Israel doesn't know. God's very own people don't understand. Not only have they rejected a relationship with God as their father, they seem to not understand the gravity of their offense. And so in verses 4 to 9, Isaiah unpacks what they've done. Verse 4 is really helpful for us because it starts off with four descriptions of their wickedness and then parallels them to three descriptions of the broken relationship. 
They go hand in hand. The wickedness, Israel is a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. But then you see the broken relationship. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. You see, this is the reality of sin. While there's all kinds of ugly behavior that we see and feel, underlying it all is a broken relationship with God. As we cut ties with God, it leads to all the mess that we see and experience. But in the midst of this, there's a strange little detail that seems out of place. Did you notice how God is described? He is the Holy One of Israel. And I reckon that's a pretty strange way to describe God in this context. So, here's a chance for you to chat with a person who shares your step or wherever else you are in the lecture theatre. What is it that seems strange about God calling Himself the Holy One of Israel? Enjoy saying hi to those around you. Holy. Holy is about being pure and perfect and set apart. It's the Godness of God that cannot tolerate sin or impurity or evil. And it's not just that Israel's kind of not got not such a good relationship with God. They are evil. They are full of sin. Holiness and sin do not go together. And yet, in the midst of this indictment against them, God says, I am the Holy One of this unholy people. He has bound Himself to them. And though they are trying to pull away from Him and reject Him, God continues in the midst of rebuking them to say, I am your God, I am the Holy One of Israel. If you want to know who God is, He is the God who is committed to His people. Even when, he turns his, even when they turn their back on Him. So what is God going to do? Well, first, Isaiah keeps on unpacking what Israel has done. It's the, this accusation against the nation. Verses 5 and 6 take us to a metaphor that the problem is kind of like an illness. It's spread from the head and the heart to every extremity of the body. On the, out, on the skin of the body, it's breaking out in sores and wounds that weep and ooze all over the body. I thought about giving you a nice picture. I thought I'd spare you from that. It's a pretty repulsive image, isn't it? And what's worse, it seems to me that there is no care for these symptoms. They're not bound up. They're not treated in any way. This sin is just rampant. It's everywhere. And so judgment is going to come for this rebellion. In verses 7 and 8, the picture then becomes a reality. Now, this may be going forward in time in the book of Isaiah to describe when the Assyrians actually invade and they flatten the surrounding towns of Israel, destroying them completely. All that is left is Jerusalem, perched atop of Mount Zion. But even she is under siege. Isaiah says it's like a booth standing up within a vineyard. Maybe not this kind of booth, but you get the idea. Or it's like a lodge, a hut in a cucumber field. Everything is flat and desolate apart from one place that is left standing. That's Jerusalem. And even it is under attack. The end seems nigh. It seems inevitable. Is this the end of God's wicked and rebellious people? Well, but for the grace of God that we read in verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors... We should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Ironically, the one that they've rejected, the one who has bound himself to them, he is their only hope. We're reminded of Sodom and Gomorrah, two towns completely destroyed for their rampant celebration of sin way back in Genesis chapter 19. This is the fate that Israel deserved. But God graciously preserved a few of them. They completely failed to uphold their responsibilities, but God was merciful and saved some. 
And while God was disciplining His Son for their rebellion, He didn't abandon them or forsake them. But even then, Israel failed to respond to God. And so in verse 10, God calls them, He addresses them by the name of those rebellious towns of old. He calls them as Sodom and Gomorrah. And His warning is now ominous. It seems the end is here. So we're at point three. Religion can't fix their rebellion. Given the description of Israel that we've seen so far, are they the kind of people that you'd expect to see at church if you turn up this Sunday? Are they the kind of people you'd expect to see leading the singing or welcoming you at the door, maybe helping out on tech? It doesn't seem likely, does it? And yet, as we keep reading through verses 11 to 15, they seem actively involved in the religion of the day, in the temple worship, the sacrifices, the prayers, the religious festivals and the gatherings. If you went through Jerusalem at the time, you'd probably see them gathered there. And you'd think they had a good relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel. Though perhaps even more concerning, some of those actively involved in that worship probably thought they were in right relationship with God as well. But read verse 11. What to me, God says, is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. And then in verse 13, he just tells them to stop. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. And we're still in verse 15. God says he's going to block his ears to their prayers. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make your prayers, I will not listen. It's a sober warning and I take it for us too. You can do all kinds of religious practices, even what God Himself has required, and still be estranged from God and under His judgment. How? Because religion can never replace relationship. The attraction of religion is there's stuff that we can do. It feels within our power. We feel in control of the relationship. The focus moves to us and what we can do rather than God and the relationship that we need with Him. And so in religion, it can look like you have a deep devotion, a deep commitment to God, while your heart is far from Him in rebellion and estranged from relationship. And that was the problem for Israel. I hope it's not the problem for us too. So we see at the end of verse 13, when God tells them to stop the offerings of the religious gatherings. Why? Well, in the last line of verse 13, we read, God cannot endure iniquity and sin alongside solemn assembly in this kind of mock relationship. They don't go together. Clean up your act. Don't act as if you're in a relationship with me whilst being in rebellion with me. Or down in verse 15, as they come, opening, spreading their hands before God, making prayers to Him. God doesn't listen. Why? Well, because their hands are full of blood. Religion can mask rebellion can pretend it's not there. It can even persuade those who practice it that they're in the right with God. But without a personal relationship, religion is a false hope and a waste of time. And so, perhaps interestingly, in verses 16 and 17, God calls His people to clean up their lives. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Now, you may think that all sounds like religion. But how is it different to what God has just condemned? Well, here's another chance to say hi to those around you. How are verses 16 and 17 different from the religious practices that God is not pleased with? 
30 seconds, enjoy a chant. What's the difference? Uh, perhaps in 11 to 15, religion is stuff that you're trying to do to please God or to rebuild the relationship with God or to connect with God. I take it verses 16 and 17, uh, the, the behaviors that flow out of relationship with God. But if you want to use six, verses 16 and 17 as a way to try and please God or earn His favor, it's just as useless as all the religious practices condemned. The key is the relationship. And the relationship must flow into your life to do good, to hate evil, to care in particular for those who are weak and who are vulnerable. It's not a substitute for relationship, but it must flow from a right relationship. It must be seen in the way that you live it out. But without a relationship, even those so-called good works are powerless to fix the solution. And so as verse 18 begins, it seems the situation has come to a head. The ultimatum has been laid down. It's now like a meeting between plaintiff and defendant. Can we seek a resolution? The evidence from verse upon verse seems crystal clear. God's people have failed. They've failed to uphold their relationship with God. Their lives have become an evil mess. They haven't heeded the warning since now God's judgment must fall. And yet, have a look at verse 18. What is God's verdict? What is God's ultimatum on His people? Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It's what no one could be expecting at this point, is it? All that we've seen is their failure and their stained red lives under their sin and rebellion means that they must deserve death. And yet from nowhere, God's verdict is divine pardon. It is cleansing, purification and life. God is incredibly merciful when His people do not deserve it. What are the conditions? Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do you see again? It's all about relationship. Are you willing to accept God's invitation and rightly honor Him with obedience in your life? Or are you going to refuse the offer of forgiveness? Continue in rebellion against God? Because if you turn and obey God, then you'll eat the blessing, the good of the land. His provision will be your gift once more. But if you reject God's offer, if you continue in rebellion rather than eating the good, you'll be eaten by the sword, consumed by God's judgment and death. And you can be sure of this because God's word is sure. You have it on oath. Now, it seems like a pretty easy and obvious choice, doesn't it? A few offers are better. Perhaps the more difficult question we have to face is, how can the God who loves justice make such a good offer to pardon those who are so clearly wicked and rebellious. Well, I wonder if we see a bit of that answer in Revelation chapter 7, where we've got some similar imagery. Uh, this time John is given a vision of what's, what there is in heaven, and he sees people from every tribe and language and nation gathered before God's throne and before the Lamb, and they're clothed in beautiful white robes. And the question comes up, where'd they get such nice white robes? And the answer is perhaps surprising. 
they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's not normally how you'd expect to make clothes white. But the profound significance is, though we are stained red with our sin, Jesus' blood is able to wash us clean. It is the only way that our rebellious deeds can be taken away from us. The blood of the Lamb is no less than a reference to Jesus' death on the cross that takes away the sin and the judgment that rebels like you and I deserve. And that, friends, is incredibly good news for us. But for them, as we keep on reading into verse 21, it seems like they've made the incomprehensible decision not to accept God's offer of forgiveness, but to continue in rebellion. And so we're at point four, redemption through refining. Now, one of the fundamental characteristics of, uh, of God is that He requires His children to live in faithfulness. God's people need to trust Him and for that to be their, their unwavering commitment, their orientation towards Him. It's a relationship of dependence, you could say, like a child to a father. But in graphic and confronting terms of verse 21, we see that God's people are faithless, not faithful. Described like a promiscuous woman, a, a whore who hasn't upheld the relationship and the duties that she has. And their rebellion against God is seen in the wickedness of their works. Instead of justice and righteousness, there's exploitation, abuse and murder. Verse 21, the faithful city Jerusalem has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderous. And in verse 23, your princes are rebels and companions are thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Between these two descriptions of evil, Isaiah gives two pictures of something precious losing its value as it's mixed with something, well, inferior. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. You see, when silver is pure, it's of great value. But when you mix in with all the impurities, the dross is of little value in comparison. And again, God's children deserve His wrath. But He refuses to forsake them. But now the path to their redemption is through the refining fires of judgment. That's what's required to burn away their evil and impurity. But again, notice this is all God's doing. God offers a solution. God brings the salvation. Verse 24, Therefore the Lord Himself declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will destroy your judges at the first and your counselors at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. You see, God is going to restore His people. They were supposed to be the faithful city. They've been faithless and God will make it right again. But the path is through the painful process of, of smelting, of burning away the wickedness and rebellion. That's what's required to make a new, pure people for Himself. What is the purity? What is the impurity? Well, verses 27 and 28 help us. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. You see, those whom God redeems by His justice and righteousness are those who repent, 
those who turn back to trust Him. They are those that are pure and valuable metal. The ones who are consumed by the fires of God's judgment are those who continue in rebellion and sin, who forsake the offer of relationship. Do you see, again and again, we're seeing the same point. There's safety and salvation for all who turn to God and receive a relationship with Him. But there's peril and punishment for all who reject Him. And if that's the verdict for God's people, what about for the rest of the world? Well, before we get there, let's consider a little about this smelting and refining. What is the judgment that God brings upon His people that results in them becoming this pure, righteous, faithful material? Here's one last chance to chat with those around you. What is the judgment that brings about their purification? Last chance, 30 seconds. Any thoughts? Uh, What is the judgment that God brings that brings about the purification, the refining of His people? Any thoughts? The judgment of His Son. The judgment of His Son. Thank you. That comes a little bit further down the track. We'll ponder how that might be a refining judgment. Uh, Exile. Exile. That comes a lot nearer in history. Uh, Thanks. Other thoughts? The changing of their hearts, potentially related to the, the coming of the Son or the Spirit. Thanks. Other thoughts? Uh, the next verse contains opportunities for their judges to actually whip them into shape. So there's going to be some good leaders, maybe to whip them into shape, maybe do some other stuff for them. Any other thoughts? That sounds like a great collection. We should work with that and work to finish on time. We'll finish at 5-2. Have no fear. Uh, probably the first thought that would have come to mind was what was going to happen in the immediate future. Maybe it's the Assyrians marching on Judah and, well, removing some of the people. Maybe that was purifying. Maybe it was going into exile. That was the next big marker that Isaiah looks forward to. But with both of those, they don't seem to leave God's people as a pure, refined lump. It actually begs the question, when are God's people ever not a mix of pure and impure? I'm surprised none of you went to the New Testament to think about some of the, the ways that testing of faith is picked up. It's often what we can think about with this kind of purifying. And so in 1 Peter 1, also in James 1, you've got this idea of various trials that test the genuineness of your faith. There's this uh, yeah, analogy for metals perhaps being refined as well. But I guess the question to say, aren't Christians already pure, righteous by what Jesus has done for us? And it seems a little different to the kind of the purging, refining judgment. We'll come to Malachi in a moment. One of the other pictures of refining comes from Malachi. And he's talking about the time when God is going to come and bring His final judgment. But that picture of the day of the Lord, if you like, is as a refiner's fire, which brings this purification of people. And interestingly, as he starts off in Malachi 3 verse 1, the preparation for that final judgment comes through a guy who sounds a lot like John the Baptist, the messenger who prepares the way before God to come and act. And so it does seem like perhaps what we're being prepared for is the refining judgment that happens through Jesus' death on the cross. But how does that work? How does that work for us? Well, This seems to be the point where God's judgment, His final judgment, is poured out with the result that God's people are purified. The fires of judgment fall on Jesus 
with the result that our sin, the red stains from our iniquity, can be burnt away. If you like, the fires of refining do not fall on us, but on the Lord who died in our place. That's the only way through the blood of the Lamb that our sins can be washed white as snow. As we read in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, in Jesus we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. By God's justice and righteousness, as we see in Isaiah, those who repent are redeemed through Jesus' blood. It's the only way that you and I can be purified and cleansed as Jesus stood in our place. But again, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, back to Isaiah, and then we'll land with that. Isaiah delivers God's sentence on his own rebellious people. It's a message of judgment that is coming. Though there is hope for them. But what is the hope beyond the borders of Israel? Well, that takes us to chapter 2 and point 5, reversal invites reform. With chapter 2, it's kind of like we have a new beginning. The opening words of the book echo the prophetic introduction from the start. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. We also have a new time period, not, not the four kings that we saw before, not even in the days of Isaiah himself, but in verse 2, it will be in the latter days that these things come to pass. It's a promise for the future. It's a promise for the end of the world. And it's a truly remarkable picture. Have a look, chapter 2 and verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Do you see this incredible reversal? In Isaiah's day, the nations walked into the land of Judah and trashed it. They were waging war. They came all the way up to Jerusalem shouting mockery against God and the people who trusted Him. But God would bring a day when the multitudes from the nations would come to Jerusalem in peace. Eager to hear God's words, wanting to walk in God's ways. And this will come about, did you see how? When God's good word, the law of the Lord spreads from Jerusalem to every corner of the earth. Isaiah looked forward to the day when God's offer of forgiveness to to wash blood-stained sin away, when that could be extended to the whole world. He spoke of those wonderful days at the end of the world when people could hear and follow the wise words of the God who made them. And you know the good news, don't you? We live in those days. Just as God's refining judgment was accomplished through Jesus, so His death is what opened this invitation of salvation to people from every tribe and language and nation. As we look at the last few verses, or a few verses down in Ephesians chapter 1, we see that God's plan for the fullness of time for these days, for the last days, is to actually unite all things in Him. That is, in Jesus. It's as the word of Jesus goes out to the whole world that the multitudes repent and turn back to God and receive His offer of forgiveness because Jesus died and rose 
so that we could delight to walk in obedience to Him. Hearing that this is God's future, do you see the obvious implications for Israel back then? Well, they had to to change their ways. They had to get with God's program. Verse 5, A house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. You see, the whole world was going to come and rejoice in the goodness of God's Word. And Israel had it right then. They were able to walk in it right then. And so the obvious implication is they should reform their ways. They should obey the God that they were eager to reject. They should learn to delight in the blessing of having His Word and living it out day by day. And can I say that's the same for God's people today. If you are reconciled to God through Jesus' death in your place, if He is Lord of your life, then your delight and your joy is to walk in obedience to Him as you put what He has said into practice. This is what we will do for all eternity. It's what the nations long to have and it's what we have access to right now. So how are you going delighting in what is good and turning from what is evil as you walk in obedience to our great God? But if you are here and you are still estranged from God, out of relationship with Him, what do you do? Well, we're at point six, a father's joy. You see, the God of the universe is holy and majestic and perfect and separate from us in our sinful rebellion. And yet He chose to bind Himself to a wayward and rebellious people, like a father to a son. God raised Israel in love and discipline, but they rebelled against Him, forsaking the blessing of relationship with Him, rejecting their duty as sons and despising Him as their dad. As a just parent, God will judge the wickedness of His children. We've seen again and again, haven't we? His desire is always to show mercy, to make it possible for His people to be well, refined, cleansed, able to enjoy relationship with Him forever. That was the offer He extended to His son Israel. But we see that through the promise of Isaiah 2 and through the fulfillment in Jesus, that invitation is extended to all peoples in all nations right now. Today, that's the invitation that God is holding out to us. Now, you may be familiar with one of the most famous stories that Jesus told. It's one that resonates with many of us and talks about the reality of who God is as the Father. It talks about the fact that a father raised his kids to follow him to know Him. But the youngest son said that he wanted to take all the blessing that his dad could provide, all the good stuff his dad had to offer, and then he wanted to reject relationship with Him. He wanted to run out and live for his own pleasure, not honoring or respecting his dad in any way. After a while, that son realized that life on his own wasn't so good. And so he turned his life around and came back, but he knew he'd rejected and forfeited any rights he had to sonship. But he wanted to do anything he could to be under the blessing of his father. So he asked if he could come and serve as a servant in his father's house. When his dad saw him coming, you probably know the story. He welcomed him with open arms. He gave him the honor of a son. He celebrated his return. There was complete forgiveness. And he was restored to the blessing of being part of his father's house once more. That's how Jesus described his father to us. That's how Jesus wanted us to know the, the joy of His Father in welcoming back people who have taken the blessing of God, but then rejected relationship with God, and then come to their senses and repent and return. If that is you, can I urge you to come back to your Father? Gary drove the streets for three years looking for his son. 
And he's just a, a pale reflection of the delight, the wong that our Heavenly Father has for his children to come back. He sent Jesus into the world to find you. Jesus died on the cross to wash you clean. Will you come home today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your rich word to us in the book of Isaiah. We are sorry that it is only too natural for us to follow in the ways of your people and walk in rebellion against you. Father, thank you that you make it possible for us to be forgiven, for us to be welcomed home. And Father, we pray that we would all accept your invitation and that we would walk wisely as we follow your word in the world that you have made. Father, please continue to teach us your ways through the book of Isaiah this term. And may we all enjoy life and peace with you forever. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.